Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is what Roger said set the plan for the evangelism in in Acts, wasn't it? Do you remember? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. I can remember as a newly restored, previously backslidden Christian in Leeds, and guess how I came back to the Lord? Through Young Life, every member of the the question panel were blessed through it, so was I. And I can think of nothing that has blessed me more than the combination of United Beach Missions and Young Life, or the National Young Life Campaign, as it was called called then. Through YL, I came into blessing. And I'd started going to the open air meeting outside Leeds Town Hall run by Werner Wright on a Tuesday lunchtime. And I can remember going to what they call the Leeds Keswick. Now Leeds and Keswick don't have a lot in common. But they called it the Leeds Keswick because it was a Keswick convention reproduced in various centres. And the speaker that year was a man called the Reverend Dr. Skevington Wood who was actually a vice president of Young Life, one of the few remaining uncompromising evangelical Methodists, there are even less now, and he was there the speaker, a learned man, a godly man. And he spoke on Acts 1, uh, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, that's where the gospel had to go. And he said, I have got my outline." My outline is simple. Here, there, and everywhere. (laughs) And that, you know, that has never left me. Our witness to Christ should be here, there, and everywhere. And um, I've even made Trevor Knight's excellent uh, daily Bible readings that you can get uh, online if you want, on this one. Um, I remember when, when I lived in York, there was a firm called Whitby C. Olivers. It was a removal firm. And the motto on the side of that red van written in white was this, across the street or across the world. I thought, I wish that was written on our churches. That's where our gospel should go, except it should be across the street and across the world. And what we're talking about reaching in evangelism here is the same thing when we talk about missionary work abroad. And we shouldn't just be thinking about the person in the office or the neighbor or those who we meet in the open air. We should be asking ourselves as well, am I in the right country? Should I be looking further afield? Should I be the one who's answering that call for more missionaries abroad in a time when there are less and less as we get more and more materialistic? in our country, and as our evangelicalism tails off as regards cutting edge in our country. We have all the choruses, but we don't have much of the compassion. Here, there, and everywhere. And we're going to be looking this afternoon at how Paul followed that through himself. I want to make some preliminary comments before I just summarize the whole of the chapter for you and then draw some conclusions. It won't take more than three hours. You think I'm joking. Um, The first I want to say is this. In the Acts of the Apostles, the speeches are almost always summaries or abbreviations. And if you don't believe me, you time how long it takes to say one. I really believe they spoke for more than two or three minutes. 
And you'll see that. And in fact, sometimes it says with many other words he said this. So you don't get the whole lot. You get the bits that the God, the Holy Spirit, has chosen to put in his word for his own good purposes. Secondly, Paul makes it very clear what his message is going to be on all of these occasions. He may not always say it. But writing to the Corinthians, which was a Greek church, of course, and here in Athens is in Greece. Before that, he was in Macedonia, which is just a bit north of Greece. Writing to the Greeks, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul, what are you going to preach? What are you going to preach? He said this, and I can't believe that Corinth was much different from them. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What's he saying? If you want to see God the Holy Spirit at work, don't come up with this airy-fairy language about this experience and that experience. Preach the cross. Preach Christ. Christ crucified, Christ risen again. That's the message that God the Holy Spirit honours and uses. And he says, I determined not to do it. And if you want to see how that worked, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you which you also received and in which you stand. Folks, we stand in that gospel or we fall. Our gospel is Christ, crucified on that cross, bearing our sin, taking our punishment, taking the wrath of God, contracted into that span as he died on that cross, taking our judgment for us. That Christ, risen from the dead, alive forevermore. That's our gospel. That's what we stand in. In which you stand, by which also you are saved. That's what saves us. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, and that is the word he preached unto them, unless you believed in vain, we can't believe that one in vain. For I delivered to you, listen to this, First of all, and that means of utmost priority. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to say, how many people were witnesses to that resurrection? I can tell you as a former criminal lawyer, the testimony list there would bring heart, uh, joy to the heart of any advocate in court who had to present it as evidence. Credible witnesses, eyewitnesses, first-hand witnesses, people who can be believed and people whose testimony agree. So we know that's what he's preaching. 
He tells us what he preaches and that's it. Now the third thing I want to say is as we look at this chapter, some, some people would hear him more than once. For example, those who go to the marketplace in Athens end up going to the Areopagus. I've been to the Areopagus. It's on a hill outside, well it's sort of in Athens but a little bit outside it. It was a kind of speaker's corner of the day. And by the way, try and get to the Christian Answer Springbank Holiday Weekend next week. That's the ne- next year. That's the nearest we can get to the Areopagus here in England. In fact, when I went, I went with a chap called Themis Katsikas, who wasn't born in Scunthorpe. And um, he, he, he started saying to me, he said, and there's a little plaque, you see, where Paul used to preach. Do you know, if I hadn't known the plaque was there, I had to choose an open air site, that would have been it. Maximum people crossing, good or, it was a great place for preaching the gospel. Well, Paul thought so as well. And uh, he said to me, he said, um, oh, let me, let me translate what, that, what those words uh, are, that, um, that are, the Greek words. I said, please do, Themis. And he said, there, he said um, men of Athens. And I said, um, wait a minute. I, does it say, I perceive that you are very religious. He said, yeah. And does it say, to the unknown God, but the one whom you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Yes, Gerard, he said. I didn't know that you knew Greek. I said, I don't, but I know the Bible. <laughs> and I had the chance to witness the Themis Katsikas about Christ crucified and risen again on the same spot. <laughs> So I said, I preach where Paul preached. I didn't have quite the same crowd. But I had the joy of speaking to that young man who has since died. Who knows if he ever heard the gospel again. Now, so I want to say to you that some would have heard it more than one time. He went to the, he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica three times. So presumably people heard him three times. He was in the marketplace daily so we don't know how many times each person here but there's a lot more than just the odd one the other thing I want to share with you is this although Paul was already commissioned to go to the Gentiles and you read that in Acts 13 46 to 48 have you noticed his pattern is still always to start with the Jews He's commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he starts preaching to the Jews. And when he starts preaching to the Jews, have you noticed, there are always Gentiles that get saved as well. It seems as if God may say, well, Gerard, your ministry is prison, but there's an old lady lady down the road who wants to save you. Tell her. He may say to Steve, your ministry is creation, and uh, and Andy McIntosh as well, creation, and, and putting the gospel through that. But there's a bloke playing volleyball at La Pana want to save. I want you to reach him as well. Let's not get too specialized, shall we? We're in the ministry of taking the gospel to sinners. And everyone counts. And so it was here. So in often in reaching the Jews, God gives him the Gentiles. Now, let me take you through what actually happened there. There are three main areas Two in Macedonia, one in Greece. In Macedonia, he starts off in Thessalonica. That's Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. He goes to the synagogue. When? It seems on arrival. How often? 
he preached there for three Sabbaths. There are some commentators who say he may have stayed there for a few months, but he started on the three Sabbaths. Why? Because the Jews were in the synagogue and also some Gentile converts would be there. So he preaches to the Jews. What is his message? What is his message? It's in verse 3. It says uh, his custom, verse 2, for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating what? What What do you think? That Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The cross and the resurrection. He says before, that's his message. Now he's showing it. And saying, this Jesus who I'm preached to you is the Christ. So he does two things. He talks about what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And that's what we do. I think it's been well explained from this platform especially by Roger, that there are those who are gifted evangelists, there are those who may be gifted teachers, but they still should preach the gospel, and there are those of us who don't think we have many gifts, but we still share the gospel. And it's, folks, may I encourage you by saying that the power isn't in the sower, it's in the seed. You know, you may not be a very good sower, but you put the seed in the ground, it'll grow. And so keep sharing that word. It's God's word. And this is what he does then. He talks about Christ's suffering and resurrection and who Christ is. He reasons from the scriptures. Have you noticed that? He doesn't reason instead of the scriptures. He reasons from the scriptures. His basis is quite clear. The Bible is God's word. I believe it. So I reason from it, not instead of it. Modernism is putting reason instead of the Bible. Biblical preaching and evangelism is reasoning from the Bible. And I can remember once being, uh, when I was on the staff at the University of York, on the admin staff, being told, um, being told once you couldn't believe a word in the Bible. I remember the bloke was there about 15 round the table. So I took my Bible out and I put it on the, on the table and I said, if you can't believe, I said, why can't you believe it? He said, well, it's full of contradictions. So I said to the chap concerned, I said, well, will you show me one? He said, I can't show you them all now. I said, I'm not asking for them all. One will do. And he went red. And folks, this is our bait. This is what we go from. There is no contradiction in context in the whole of that book. We can stand on it firmly. And that's what Paul's preaching was based on as well. So what did he, why did he preach? Well, what did he preach? It was his custom to preach and we've already seen. Now, what were the results of that particular preaching? He's in the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, he's reasoning from the gospel, he's making Christ's suffering and resurrection known, he's talking of who Jesus is. What are the results? Look at verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. That's a result, isn't it? I know in our prison work, if I hear of one man who's been converted, I'm thrilled to bits. There's one who's persuaded. And we heard of one last week who was. Amazing, no background at all, but from in three months, just by studying Mark's gospel, through the same course that we use in our follow-up, he came to know Christ. Some are persuaded, and amongst them, 
There were many devout Greeks. There were Greeks who were there as well. And leading women. Most of the women I know are leading someone. Especially Philippa, she goes her way and I go hers. Um, But they were leading women. And what did they do? They joined Paul and Silas. They weren't just lone rangers. They came and realized they needed that fellowship. So that was a result. But what was the result of that? Look at verses 5 to 8. But the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious. Isn't that funny? They're not, they're envious. What are they envious for? <laughs> they could have the blessing themselves, but they decide they're not going to have the blessing, but they're envious of those who have it. It's so stupid not to become a Christian. They became envious and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, rent a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. I hope Jason's recovered. Is he here still? Yes. Oh, yeah. Attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Folks, they hadn't turned the world upside down. They were putting it the right way up. And that's what we do with the gospel. So there was a riot. There was violence to Jason. And we don't know who Jason was. Poor old Jason didn't seem to have anything to do with it. But he copped it anyhow. Hope he gets converted as a result. And the crowd and the rulers are troubled. Now, don't be surprised if when you're preaching the gospel, it brings problems and opposition. Paul said in one place, I wanted to go there, and there were many adversaries. Not but, and. And sometimes we'll find the adversaries. So that's Thessalonica. How did he preach? Reasoning from the scriptures, starting off in the synagogue, explaining and demonstrating the resurrection in verse 3. In other words, how does the resurrection fit in with all this? Well, by the resurrection, God is saying, I'm rising from the dead, the one who has paid the penalty for your sin. And by rising him from the dead, I'm saying the, the blood of Christ is good currency in heaven. You're saved through him. He explains it. Well, when the riot comes, what does he do? Does he say, well, that's me for a little bit. I'll lie low. I'll go and have a holiday now. No, he doesn't. He goes on to Berea, also in Thessalonica. And those are, that, that's from verse 10 onwards. What happens in Berea? Well, when they arrive, they immediately go into the synagogue of the Jews. But how? That's where the troubles... Didn't it all start from there last time? Yes, but that's where he knows there'll be people to whom he can speak to about Christ fulfilling the law. He's not too worried about his own safety. That comes out quite clearly in the Bible. What he is worried about is he must get the gospel over. When does he do it? How long does he take? Does he pack his cases, first of all, go into his hotel, look round for a day, have a day off? He said, no, on arrival. Verse 10 tells us. Uh, when they arrived... They went into the synagogue of the Jews. They couldn't get there quick enough. He had zeal for the gospel. He got there with the Jews. What did he preach? Verse 11, verse 13. Verse 11 says, they received the word with all readiness. Verse 13, 
When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul. He preached the word of God. For those today who say, oh, you've got to do that today. You've got to, you've got to move with the time and say, give people what they want. Give them a disco. Give them, give them some, some clowns playing around. And most of them, I believe, that are clowns. Give them this, give them that, give them the other. He says, no, it's the word of God. We'll give them the word of God. And that's what he does. And that's what we should do. And how does he preach? Verse 11. Well, these people, of course, are more fair-minded, so it's easier. They receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out these, whether these things were so. They help them to search the scriptures. They share the word and they help them to do that. It's a slightly different approach. It's less confrontational. And what did they preach? Well, we're not told what they preach, but we know from 1 Corinthians, 1, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, and 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, we know what his message is, which is what? Christ crucified and what? Pardon? And? Anybody awake? Anyone there? Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We know he's going to preach that. You can take that as red wherever he goes. That's what he's aiming at, and so should we. I get a bit fed up with some so-called evangelistic sermons that will talk about anything and everything except the fact that on that cross Christ took my sin and my judgment in my place. I think if we haven't made clear what the cross is, we haven't preached the gospel. We may have preached some gospel truths, but the gospel is Christ died for us according to the scriptures and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. Now what was the result there? Well, it was readily received. Readily received. Isn't it nice? Isn't it a thrill when it's readily received? Now, I want to encourage you here. You might go on a beach mission one year and find it was hard going this time. And it may carry on like that. But let me tell you about Daniel and Christine from La Pan. It must have been four years ago now. We had our meeting. We didn't even know they'd gone by because they didn't say anything. Well, they did. They went by and shouted something as they went by our open-air meeting. But a number of people do, so you don't notice it. The year after, they went by, stopped for a little while, but <laughs> laughed, shouted something else and walked off. The year after that, because on the promenade at La Pan, we put plastic stools out near the open-air site as well. For those who want to sit, they came and sat down. They listened. They listened throughout that meeting. They came to every meeting for the whole of the mission, listened to it all, and were converted. So what's hard now might become readily listening later. So keep on with it. Keep on keeping on. That's true on a personal basis as well. They search the scriptures. An admirable example for us all. To search the scriptures. They search the scriptures daily. To find out if these things were so. And have you noticed in verse 12, it says this. Verse 11 says, They receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore... Many of them believed. Remember the old adage, when you see a therefore in the Bible, look and see what it's there for. 
Therefore, many of them believed. Why did they believe? Because they searched the scriptures. And we may meet people and get nowhere with them, but give them a John's Gospel to read. Ask them to read it with an inquiring mind. Ask them to ask that God speaks to them. You may never know. But when people search the scriptures with an honest heart, they will come to God. Seek and you shall find, is the promise of Jesus. So they searched the scriptures and they found. As a result of that, there were many Greeks saved and there were prominent women saved as well. What happens? Blessing, great blessing. Wait a minute, here it comes. The Jews stir up opposition. The Thessalonican Jews come. They don't like it. They stir up the opposition. And Paul goes. And one of the reasons Paul goes is because Jason has to give um, security. So in other words, if Paul causes any more problem, Jason pays for it. Well, he's already suffered enough. So Paul moves on. And Timothy and Silas, his team members, stay. Where does Paul go to? So we've been to Thessalonica, starts at the synagogue. We've been to Berea, starts at the synagogue. He goes to Athens. You'd have thought he had enough trouble by now, wouldn't you? But look what happens here. Now, while Paul waited for them, verse 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. I love that Young Life hymn that says, Let me look at the crowd as my Saviour did, till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me look till I pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. Now, Paul looks at Athens and he sees his idols and he's grieved. He's grieved for two reasons. One, it's an affront to God. Second is, what's it doing to its followers? It's confirming them in their lostness. And his heart is stirred within him. Are we stirred by these things? Are we stirred as we see people subject to all kinds of abuse through drugs and drink? Are we stirred as we see the, the moral abyss into which people are being led and things like marriage? The way that homosexuality has been taught as the best thing since sliced bread and not far after it, heterosexual immorality as well. And they're both sins and they both need forgiveness and Christ can forgive and change anybody who turns to him. Are our hearts stirred by that? Far more than signing a petition and being angry with people, are our hearts stirred? Oh, a good dose of conversion in Parliament would go a long way to solve some of that. Are we praying for our politicians? Are we praying for those who oppose us? His heart was stirred, was provoked. And what did he do? Well, he went to the synagogue. Therefore, again, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers. But wait a minute, you might say, well, not all, the, not all the people are religious, they're not all going to be in the synagogue, so what does he do? He goes to the marketplace 
And how often does he speak to them? He speaks to them daily in the marketplace. What happens? What's the result? The result here isn't a riot. The result here is an invitation. Will you come and speak at the Areopagus? The speaker's corner of Athens. Because we listen to anything new up there, and it's the philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers, whose motto is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, like many people today. And the Stoic philosophers, who they'll get through somehow. But they say, we want to come and hear about this. These foreign gods you're talking about, this resurrected Jesus, we haven't heard of him. And why did they do this? Because he preached them Jesus and the resurrection. You cannot preach Jesus and the resurrection without preaching the cross. Because Jesus means God saves. How does he save? Through that cross. What goes with the cross? First importance, Christ crucified, rose again from the dead. They are synonymous. So what happens next? Well, he's still in Athens, and this is the last bit. Now I'll just draw a few points, and we're through. He goes to Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Athens. He's invited by the hearers from the synagogue and from the marketplace. He knows he's going to reach these philosophers, and it says many Athenians were there, ordinary people. They just go and see what's happening, just like, Mar- just like Speaker's Corner. And foreigners, again, just like Speaker's Corner. If you want to touch the world in a weekend, you go to the Christian Answer Speaker's Corner. From all over the world, people are there to hear the gospel. And how does he reach them this time? This time he gets in the open air and he has a preach. And unlike the synagogues where he's going back to the scriptures, this time he sees this thing that says to the unknown God. He thought that'll do. So he starts with their own label, as it were, their own, their own, whatever you want to call it, uh, misunderstanding. And he said, look, there's that thing that, that, say, that, that says uh, to the unknown God. Let me talk to you about that. So his approach is different. It's topical, it's relevant, and it's them. And what do you think he, spe- he preaches to them? Well, we know what he preaches to them. The passage tells us. I haven't got time to go into the detail. I'm sure you've heard this message from other people before, but he starts off with who God is. He starts off with creation, including the fact that we come from one blood. And by the way, never shun away from the fact that God made the world in six days and rested the seventh. Don't be frightened because someone says you're not allowed to believe that. As John MacArthur says, creation is not... Creation is is not a scientific matter, it's a theological matter. There was only one person there when it happened. And he starts with that. And he starts with knowing God. And you say, you don't know him, but he's not far from you. And isn't that true, folks? He's a prayer away from anybody who will repent turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. He's only a prayer away. There may be someone here this, this afternoon and you've been through the whole of the weekend and you're still lost. You've heard it all. But there hasn't been that change inside that Steve talked about when he was talking to the boys and girls this morning. 
Yet he's not far away from you. He's a prayer away. There may be a backslider here and you're still backsliding though you're hearing everything that's been said. He's a prayer away from restoring you and blessing you. Just a prayer away. He's not far from you. So he preaches about knowing God and then he says you have to repent. Repentance is the key. That's missing from our gospel preaching often today. To repent and believe the gospel. What does repentance mean? I'll tell you. When I did my law finals in Leeds, I had to get up to, uh, uh, in, in London, sorry, I had to get up to Leeds. And I was on the underground going through to King's Cross. And you know what it's like on the underground. You sit there and you see these, you see these stations go by and go by, whatever, Holborn, Chancery Lane, King's Cross. King's Cross! <laughs> that was two stations back. What do I do? This is repentance. I realize I'm wrong. I get off the train. I change the platform. And I go back. That is repentance. And he says you have to repent. And why does he say you have to repent? Because God is going to judge the world. That's another thing you don't hear in gospel preaching today. There is an eternal hell to pay for those who will not repent and turn to Christ. And we don't say we are Chin stuck out and our fist in the air. We say with a sorrow in our heart. Gypsy Smith said you should never preach hell unless you have tears in your eyes. I can't manufacture the tears in my eyes, but I hope they're in my heart. Judgment is coming. Your neighbor, your work friend, your brother, your sister, your parents maybe. Maybe it's for some of you, you I don't know. People you, you mix with who don't know Christ. Judgment is coming. We need to repent and trust to Christ. It is urgent. And it's urgent that we make it clear. And he says that Savior who died on that cross and rose again, whose arms are wide open to all who will come to him, if we don't take him as Savior, we'll face him as judge. It's urgent. He doesn't go to these new people and give them something that's going to Tickle their ears for a while so they'll come again and get to know them and it'd be ever so. That's what I heard one pastor say in one church. Oh, we do it very gently and get them in then we get to know them. He didn't do that. He went in and said basically, you're lost without Christ, you need him. But he's died and risen again. And he preaches the resurrection. Now, what's the result? I've heard some people say, oh, it's a poor result, a poor result at Mars Hill. Was it? Well, people mocked him. Oh, yeah? Well, I've been mocked a few times. I've also had my nose smashed, my lips split, my eyes split. I think I'd rather be mocked. So if you're wondering which to do, just mock me, will you? I'd rather be mocked than smacked. But there were some who inquired. Have you seen that? In verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. That's a result. I love a beach mission where people say, I'll come back, and they come back. Sometimes they say they'll come back, and they don't, but sometimes they do. So Paul departed among them. So what have we got? So mockers, 
those who return, if you like, seekers, but he had some adherents as well. Some men joined him and believed. So it's some men, it had to be at least two. Fellas, how many of you here, when you've preached in the open air, have always had two believers at the end? I'd settle for that, wouldn't you, Steve? Some men heard him and believed. I'd settle for that. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a man who worked there in the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you've got one Areopagus, Damaris, and others is at least two. So you've got some men, that's two. You've got Damaris, Amaro, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dino, Dionysius, why can't they go on Fred and Mary? Um, and others is at least two. So you've got at least six people who have been converted through that. Boy, I wish I could say I'd seen that every time I'd preached. I'd rather have six thousand than six, but I'd rather have six than nothing. So he had a result. Right, let me just draw the threads together. I've just been a ramble a bit. It's because I've tried to do the whole chapter. I've tried to keep to my brief, which was do Acts 17 and speak about Paul's preaching. I have noticed a temptation to get a chapter, have the title, and then preach on what you want to preach. Well, this, I'm trying to do what I was told to do. Whenever Steve tells me to do anything, within reason, I do it. I'm the one who decides whether it's reasonable. Um, folks, what are the deductions I draw from this? Number one, preach Christ, publicly or personally. Preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead, publicly or personally. Preach who God is and what he has done. Preach repentance, the need to admit our sin and turn from it. Preach judgment. Do it sensitively. Do it lovingly. But preach it. Because the judgment is either of hell or Calvary. We either trust Christ who bore our judgment or we buried ourselves. Preach relevantly. Try to address what you're doing in the context where you're speaking. But don't ever, don't ever water down the gospel under that excuse. Preach from the Bible. What you preach must be Bible truth coming out. You may not even always quote verses, but preach Bible truth. Preach reason from the Bible. You will not find anything more reasonable than this. It's above reason in some areas. But just draw those principles out. They make sense. Now, I like this one. Preach anywhere. And preach everywhere. We can preach everywhere one-on-one, -on -one, and we can preach in quite a number of anywheres, one-on-many. Preach to anyone, and preach to what? Everyone. Go into the gospel to preach the world to every creature. Preach Christ, preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead, Preach who God is and what he has done. Preach repentance. Preach judgment. Preach relevantly. Preach from the Bible. Preach reason from the Bible. Preach anywhere and everywhere. Preach to anyone and everyone. And one last thing. And keep on preaching. Keep it going. 
Coca-Cola can be bought anywhere because it's been marketed all over the world. You can buy Coca-Cola where people don't know a thing about the gospel. Isn't it time we altered that? There was a man who was employed to sell shoes in a certain area of the world and he wrote back and he said, they're all barefooted here, there's no market for shoes. So they, they gave... They gave the job to someone else who had a bit more vision and he wrote back, he said, they're all barefooted here, there's a great market for shoes. When you see the difficulties, that's the market for the gospel. In this dark age in which we have an immoral government leading us in immoral ways, our little flickering candle for the gospel should light up. This is an age to let people know we're Christians and take what comes with it. Firefighters, go wherever the fire is. We should do the same. I was telling someone the other day, when my daughter was born, I was holding her in my arms, trying to get it right. I never found it very easy. I was happy with a rugby ball than I was with a baby. And as I was doing this with her, in our room in York, where we then lived, a funeral procession went by outside. I've never forgotten that. Folk, that is life. There's someone coming in and there's someone going out. Alan Critchlow, one of my dear friends, and a beach mission leader, died two days ago. We just don't know how long we've got to share that gospel. Don't aim to live. Don't aim to die the richest person in the graveyard. Aim to die preaching Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of Christ any more than you'd be ashamed of someone who rescued you from drowning. And trust this book. With so much to learn. So much to learn from Paul's preaching. It wasn't just to fill a theological college, uh, college agenda or to get a diploma, it was because people are lost and dying and need a saviour. And we have that same gospel. We have that same saviour. We have that same spirit. Let's use it for him. Let's do our best to get at least two other people to come on beach missions by this time next year. And then more people will hear. But let's be telling people day by day of our saviour and our Lord.